Hey, this is Pastor Allen. Thank you so much for checking out this message from Praise. Every year in advance of Christmas, we take the four weeks leading up to December 25th, and we talk about the four themes of Advent, which are hope, peace, joy, and love, in light of Jesus Christ coming and being among us. I hope that this message and this series is meaningful for you. Well, one of our most uh, cherished traditions at Praise is our Christmas Eve service. Um, And for me, at least, that is one of my favorite services of the year. And next week, this year, uh, Christmas Eve is on a Sunday. And so as we've been thinking about what we want that to look like as people get busy that day, and already you can tell people are starting to head out and travel, and, and many of our, even our young adults have kind of headed back home for the year at the end of the semester. Um, it's just one of those times where uh, as that busyness increases, we just, we just felt like this year in particular with Christmas Eve being a Sunday, that we wanted people here for that Christmas Eve service on Sunday night. And so next Sunday, there's not going to be a Sunday morning service. Uh, Instead, we are going to meet at 6 p.m. everybody in this place. And that is always just such a a beautiful and a simple service. Uh, There's not a lot of complexity to it. It is just very straightforward as we focus on uh, the very simple and deep message of what it means that Jesus Christ came to be with us. And so that is next Sunday at 6 p.m. Make sure to join us for that. And I know many of you are going to be headed out. I've been talking to people already and people getting ready to scatter to all over the United States for Christmas. But some of you have others who are coming here and will be here with you for the Christmas holiday. And so uh, if they're going to be here on Sunday night, I would just, and even if in advance, you tell them come a little early in order to be here for that service, especially if they don't go to church on a regular basis. Invite them to come next Sunday night. Make it a a regular tradition for you and your family that you are at praise on Christmas Eve. This is something that really goes back to the the beginning of my pastorate. I just, I really felt like that Christmas Eve in particular was something where there's an opportunity for us to focus in and really think about in very simple ways what it means that Jesus Christ came to be with us and to be God with us and the massive difference that makes in our lives, or at least the massive difference it should make in our lives. And so make sure to invite them for that. It can become a regular tradition for you. And uh, if nothing else, you can take pictures out at the tree in the lobby for your family, dress up, make yourself look nice, and uh, join us for Christmas Eve. You can also go out near the pavilion. I've seen some of the pictures that were next to the big tree out near the pavilion, um, and man, those turned out great as well. And so just, just there's a couple of places where you can get a family photo on Christmas Eve. Um, so make sure to join us next Sunday for that. Today, we are wrapping up just like our gifts, when they're done being purchased and ready to go, we, the last thing we do is we wrap them and get them ready. At our house, just so you know, all of my gifts are wrapped and under the tree. All of the gifts are wrapped and under the tree. There's a couple that the kids have yet to wrap um, that they've got to get wrapped. But other than that, our house is ready. We're done. It feels like we are officially 
at Christmas, at least at our house. And so today we are also wrapping up our Advent series, our series that leads up to um, the Christmas, uh, uh, right up to Christmas. If, if you don't know, every year we do an Advent series, which is something that some people have asked me, well, why do we do the same series every year of an Advent series leading up to Christmas instead of coming up with like a brand new series that has a new fancy name for this year's Christmas? And I, I, to, to answer that question, I think the best way to do it is for me to give you insight into the pressures on a pastor. Just so you know, and this is, this is real life, and I'm talking about pastors everywhere, feel a specific pressure as you approach Christmas, and especially Christmas and Easter, there is this pressure to come up with something new and profound to say about these deep truths, because often at Christmas and Easter, this is the time of year when people who don't otherwise go to church come to church, and or they haven't been here in a while, but then they show up on those days, so you're like, oh man, I really got to hit a home run on those days. And so you always feel this kind of pressure to do something new and profound. And, and yet the thing about Christmas and Easter is that the whole point of having a day on the calendar where we remember Jesus Christ being born is not that there would be something new and profound, but instead the most simple and, and the thing that we've heard over and over and over again that we would come back to it again. This is what Peter said. Peter said as he was getting ready to die, he said, all right, I'm going to leave you with one last thing. Here's the last thing I'm going to leave you with. Not some new profound truth, but instead I'm going to remind you of all those things that you know already. Sometimes what we need is a reminder again and again because we're fickle people and throughout the years, all the stuff is going on and all the busy things that are happening, we need to come back again and again and again to those simple and clear and important truths. And so for us, several years back, as a pushback against that kind of pressure to create and say something new, we decided to do something very old, which is the Advent series, and to do it every single year. I don't just rehash sermons, if you're wondering. We write new sermons, but we go back to these same themes. And the themes of Advent are very old themes. They go back hundreds of years of hope and peace and joy, and love. And every year we talk about these as we lead up to Christmas because, even as I think about it, part of the reason why I think these are the themes of Advent is because Advent is about the coming of Christ, and it's about the wait for the coming of Christ. And there's certain things that during the waiting seasons in our lives that are difficult. Typically, it is difficult to keep hope burning when the weight keeps extending. And it is difficult sometimes to hold the peace when the weight keeps on going. And joy is often one of the very first things to go when you're in a waiting season. And yet, these are the aspects of our faith that are most important during seasons of waiting. And so that's why we talk about them. That's why it's hope and, joy, uh, hope and peace and joy and love, that these are the themes that we come back to every single year at Advent. And I know there are people in this room right now that I have talked to this week or have talked to in the last month or even two who are waiting for various things in their lives. I just know there's a lot of waiting going on. And there's some of those things that are waiting that they believe God has promised something to them and they haven't seen it yet. 
or others who are waiting for other things in their life that maybe it's not as serious, but they just keep waiting for something in particular that just hasn't happened. Uh, Just this last week, I was thinking about um, something that when Liz and I were first dating in 2002-ish, we dated for four years before we got married. I don't know why it took her that long to realize I was the one, but it did. And so... Um, You'll know why in just a moment, why it took her four years. Um, But about two years in to the dating, we felt like God had spoken certain promises to us, individually, corporately. And so two years in, while we were still dating, this had been 2002, so more than 20 years ago, we got a, a plaque. And on that plaque, we wrote right at the top, a chance to witness God's faithfulness. And then below that, we put individual things that we believed that God had promised to us. And we kept that. It is still at home, in my office downstairs, displayed. And I look at it just about every day. But as I look back on those things that God promised to us 20, 21 years ago, almost all of them, all of them except for two, have been fulfilled. One of the two, I won't tell you what it is, but the second one says, for Alan to get his doctorate. When we wrote that, that was before I had done undergraduate work. That was before I had gotten my master's. And here we are 21 years later, and at the right time, in the right place, now we're seeing that being fulfilled. The other one, we're still in waiting. So there are things that we wait for, and then there are things that when we see them realized, it's such a beautiful thing to see how faithful God is. And then there's other things that we wait for that aren't as serious. I have been waiting since we got married in 2005 to have a live Christmas tree at Christmas. It has been. 18 years now, and I still have not had a live Christmas tree at Christmas. I grew up with live Christmas trees. I had never even had a fake Christmas tree until I married that woman. (laughs) Now you know why it took her four years. Um, But she grew up in a house with fake Christmas trees. You might call it an inauthentic home. I know. (laughs) I know. I feel the same way about that. And I can't say anything about the way she was raised. I'm not speaking to that in any way, shape, or form. But I will say there's something about the authenticity of having a real Christmas tree. And so for years, we've had this back and forth. And I've always thought, this is the year when we're going to get a live Christmas tree. This is the year when we're going to have a live Christmas tree. And I've tried time and time and time again for it to be the year when we have a live Christmas tree. And we still have not had a live Christmas tree. Several years back, I said, this is it. This is the year. We're going to get a live Christmas tree. And she said to me, Alan, live Christmas trees are messy. And I said, honey, 
so am I. <laughs> but you keep me around. And then I realized that was not a good argument to stand on. That ground was kind of shaky, and so I backed up from it. And I said, okay, this year you can have a fake Christmas tree. But then the next year I thought, this time I will be prepared for whatever her response is. I will know what I'm going to say in advance so that whatever she throws at me, I will have something that I can respond to it. And she said to me that time, she said, I, I just don't want another chore, right, of watering the Christmas tree on a daily basis. And I said, Liz, 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 don't think of it as a chore, Think of it as an opportunity. <laughs> an opportunity to water your Christmas spirit. <laughs> or what's left of it after having a fake tree all your life. And, and that was the point at which I realized, okay, stop that year, just walk away, don't even, don't even go there anymore. And then the next year, I, in preparation, I realized that what I needed to do in reality was con to connect with her deeply emotionally, right? To express why I have this deep desire for a real tree. And so I told her, I said, when I first came to praise, and I started working for Joe in the maintenance department, he put me on fluffing fake trees, And so every tree you would see all around praise in 2003, 2004, 2005 were all fluffed by me. And I remember the very first year I was out there fluffing trees and I was doing it as unto the Lord. And those trees were getting fluffed so well. And Joe Sardo came out and he said to me, Alan, you are the best tree fluffer that praise assembly has ever had. <laughs> and I felt that deeply. And for years, I invested in the art of fluffing trees. For years, I put energy and effort into it. And then someone told me, you know, Joe only told you that because he doesn't want to do it. <laughs> and I said to Liz, for me now, reaching into a fake tree to fluff it, And feeling those fake pine needles on my skin is like fingernails on a chalkboard. Like inauthenticity on my soul. I said, fluffing trees is so tedious. And she said, so is fluffing your ego, but I do it every single day. And I said, I am the priest of this household. And she said, most priests are celibate. <laughs> so the next year I did research. And I brought her the website where the National Tree Association released and said that every single year, live Christmas trees provide 100,000 jobs to the economy. Job creation, I said. This is job creation. Think of those kids whose parents are going to have money to buy them gifts on Christmas morning because we got a live Christmas tree. Think of the workforce. And she said... Where's the workforce when I have to vacuum those needles? I said, a tree smells better. 
And she said, I didn't marry you for the smell. (laughs) So this was the year. This was the year for a live Christmas tree. So I'd done all the preparation. And I said to her, did you know that 85% of artificial Christmas trees are made in China? And from there shipped all over the world using oil and fuel and releasing harmful carbon emissions. And those trees are made with dangerous chemicals and metals and polyvinyl carbonate, which is when it's manufactured, releases pollutants like dioxine and something else and polyvinyl dicarbonate and that's not biodegradable and those things are known to be toxins causing all sorts of diseases and I said and older Christmas trees are known to have lead and when you throw them away they sit in the landfill for centuries and she said well first she walked up to me and she leaned in Gave me a kiss on the cheek. She said, I, I just love your perseverance. And then she walked away. <laughs> so we have a fake Christmas tree again this year. But next year. We have 365 days, praise. 365 days. Who in here is live Christmas tree people? Now, come on, you got to give it up for live Christmas tree people. Wow, that was pathetic. How many of you are artificial tree people? I love you all, but I don't have to like you right now. (laughs) Today we're talking about God's love, and the coming of Jesus Christ is more a representation of God's love than anything else. And as we are waiting, God's love is, because Advent is as much about waiting for Jesus Christ's second coming as it is about relying on and calling back to his first coming. In fact, the part of Advent that many of us miss is that the first coming of Jesus Christ is supposed to be the well that we draw on as we wait for his second coming. So as we're waiting, and as we're waiting, and as we're waiting, we wait with hope and peace and joy and love. And more than anything else, the coming of Jesus Christ represents for us God's love to us. I was thinking about that even this week, and the verse... John chapter 3, verse 16, which is one of the most, most well-known verses in the Bible for people all over the place. And it speaks to this very thing. For God so loved. In the NLT, for this is how God loved the world. He gave his only one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God loved, so God gave. 
And giving is such a part of love. The book of John, is, it's filled with giving. 63 times in the gospel, John talks about God giving or Jesus giving. It, giving is a part of the theme of the book of John. He brings it up over and over and over and over again. God loved, so God gave. Gave. And the thing is, I think, for us early in life, there's a, a part of our life where, where Christmas is about receiving, right? And, and then there's a part where, as we get older, we realize that the joy in Christmas is not about receiving, but it's actually in giving. There's that transition. And I think it starts in elementary school when you have that teacher who makes you make a gift for your parents and you can't wait for them to open or your mom to open those big earrings made from clay that are this big and hold her ears all the way down. And yet she opens it and she pretends, ah, oh, thank you. This is just what I was hoping I would get. Put them in. No, please, we'll wait until a more opportune time. And, and yet that whole process you learn through there that there is something about giving which is just so incredibly joyful. I remember the very first time I gave a gift. Part of the reason why I love live trees so much is that when we were growing up, we had a Christmas tree farm. We sold Christmas trees. And every year, I was one of the salesmen. I would go out and I would talk them through which tree they should buy and help them to find one and choose one and then buy one. And, and my dad paid me. And when I was 13 years old, it should have happened before then, but when I was 13 years old, that was the first time I decided I was going to, with all the money I had saved that Christmas, I was going to buy gifts for the whole family. And so I decided, and I've got a big family, there's eight of us, right? There's six kids, three girls, then three boys. And I'm like, I'm, I'm going to buy gifts for everybody. But then I decided instead of buying individual gifts, what I should do is buy one big gift for the whole family. And I was like, well, what does the family want? But I couldn't ask them because as soon as you ask them, then they know what you're going to get them. And so instead I said, well, I'm a part of the family. I'm one of the eight. What do I want for Christmas? And what I really wanted for Christmas was a PlayStation. Because the PlayStation, it was brand new, just come out. There was this Tony Hawk roller, yeah, okay. So there was this game that I really wanted to be able to buy for the family, for everybody to be able to play together. And I was sure this is a great party game. I can just foresee us as a family sitting around the TV playing. And so I bought a PlayStation being one of the eight in the family. I knew if I wanted it, everybody else probably did too. And so I bought the PlayStation. I did open it up before Christmas just to make sure that it worked. And then I put it back in the box for Christmas morning, wrapped it all up. I don't remember what anybody else was thinking, but I was ecstatic. That was such a great gift to the family. And I bought the PlayStation. I don't remember if anybody else played it, but I remember I played it a lot afterwards. Because the thing about gift giving is the gift giving process tells you a whole lot about the giver. And in this instance, when I was 13 years old, it tells you a lot about what the 13-year-old Alan valued. And when God gives his son, it tells you a whole lot about what God values. We know he loves his son. We know he cares for his son. And yet he gave his son for you and me. And that speaks so deeply to his incredible love for us. That he gave his son for us. But it also tells us about us. 
Because this is the gift that he gave that we needed, right? Because right after this, nobody ever reads after verse 16. Here's what verse 17 says. God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. There is no judgment. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him, but anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. He sent his son not just as an act of his love, but it was an act of his love. It was also an act which shows what our deepest need is. The best gifts you can give are the gifts that the other person doesn't even know or write down that they want. It is totally different to just write write down what you want and then have somebody buy the thing that you want. It is a totally different thing when somebody knows you well enough to get you the thing that you wanted but you didn't tell them. And then it's a whole other thing entirely when there is something that you need that you don't even know you need or you want and you don't even know you want it and yet they know you better than you know yourself. That is the highest and greatest way of giving gifts. And that, my friends, is exactly what God did for us. The thing we didn't know we needed. We were already judged, already condemned. We were already lost in our sin. We didn't even know it. And yet he knew us better than we know ourselves. And he sent his son. So the gift giving tells us about God. It also tells us about us. And he tells us why next. Verse 19, it says that the judgment has already happened. And the judgment is based on this fact, that God's light came into the world, but people loved the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. A big part of the theme of Advent is darkness and light. Isaiah talks a lot about this. He, he says that for those who have been walking in darkness, a light has shined. They see a great light. It's an incredible picture of those who don't even know that they need something, and yet as they're walking in darkness, the light dawns on them. When John kicks off his gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke all start in different places, right? Mark decides to start right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and he goes from the beginning of Jesus' ministry through his ministry. Luke says, I'm going to start back further than that, and he backs up to the birth narrative. He shares how um, Zechariah and Elizabeth uh, were promised John and John's birth. And then there, he shares the angel's revelation to Mary and then the miraculous birth that happened. So he starts all the way back at the birth of Jesus. And then Matthew decides, I'm going to even go back further than that. And where Mark gave a genealogy going back to David, he goes all the way back to Abraham. But John goes back even further than that. He goes back to the very beginning. And he says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And nothing, or he, everything was created, was created through him, and nothing was created except through him. And then it says, and the word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. He goes all the way back to the beginning, before Genesis 1-1, and he says, this is what it looks like in relation to Jesus as the word of God who brings life and light. When you go back to Genesis, it actually says that everything was dark and formless and void, and then God spoke. What was the very first thing that God spoke? Let there be light. 
And that word, Jesus, went forth. And whereas before the Spirit was hovering over the dark and formless and void, over the chaos, when God spoke and light came, it says, let there be light and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, which separated the light from the darkness. The very first thing that God did was limit the darkness. And that light stopped chaos. And that light began to call forth out of the void life. And that's what Jesus does still. He limits darkness. He calls from the void life. And he creates where there was nothing before, something new. And out of chaos brings order. Just as the word limited darkness before, Jesus is the only one who puts darkness on its back foot now. He's the only one. That's what John says. And then in Luke, Zechariah says, when he's prophesying right after John's birth, he says, he's calling back to Isaiah when Isaiah talks about those who walked in darkness, but he says it differently. He says, those who are sitting in darkness, on those who are sitting in darkness, a great light has dawned or is dawning. And he says, and it will shine on them. In other words, there are some who are walking in darkness and there are some who are sitting in darkness. And that line has always gotten me because who are those who are sitting in darkness? I think there's only three people who sit in darkness. I don't know why anybody would want to sit in darkness. I can understand walking in darkness. Every morning, if you get up before your spouse and you're walking through the bedroom, that is walking in darkness and you can't see a thing, but you know where things are until you've been wrapping gifts on the floor in the bedroom because you've been hiding it from the kids. Like it happened yesterday. And I was walking through the darkness in the middle of the, um, well, it was early in the morning and I'm walking real confident because I know where things are. And then bam, that thing was not there before. And I think there's only three different kinds of people who would sit in the middle of that. I think there are those who are sitting in darkness because they are waiting for the light to dawn. And then there are those who are sitting in darkness because they have given up. I'm not going any further. I'm done. And they sit in darkness. And then the third kind are those people who are hiding. And on all of them, it says Jesus' light is dawning, regardless of the three, whether they're hiding, whether they've given up, or whether they're waiting, the light dawns. Verse 19, back in chapter 3, and the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but people loved the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. All who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it for fear their sins will be exposed. This is one of the most tragic parts of the story of Christmas. One of the most tragic parts of the story of Christmas is that God loved so much that he sent his son as a light and life into the world, but that the majority of humanity look at that and it causes them unease. God so loved us that he sent his son to save us from our sin, but because we love our sin so much, we don't want to go near the light. We hate it. I love having LED headlights on my car. You know what I don't love? When other people have LED headlights on their car, and they're driving towards you at night, and you're like, I cannot see, and you're like, 
turn off your brights, and then they turn their brights on. And then it's like your whole soul is laid bare for them. Like they can see right to the depths of your being with those LED headlights on. Every time that happens, you know what I say? I say, God, thank you that they can see me. Because I really want them to be able to see me, right? It's important for them to be able to see me. If they can't see me, then there might be a problem, right? So I'm okay with it. At least that's how I convince myself that I'm okay with headlights like that. I love having them though, because then you can see others, And that's great, Um, but for them to be able to see me is also hugely important. What I have found is this from John chapter 3, verse 19, that it is true for me. When I do something I am not proud of, I do not want others to know about it. When I do something that is sinful, the last thing I want to do is to take that and bring it in for everybody to see. Instead, the most natural thing is when I do something that I'm not proud of to hide it away so that nobody else sees it. I've also found this to be true of others. I have found this to be true where there are some people who will not come to church because they don't like the way they feel when they're in church. And we'll say that. Why? Because we don't Love the light. And the moment the conviction of the Holy Spirit starts touching, the Holy Spirit is such, there's something sweet about his presence, but there's also something incredibly convicting about his presence. And that conviction, if you are not used to it especially, can be a huge turnoff. You say, I don't want anything to do with that. And we pull away from it. And yet, that's the very thing that we need to do, is to step into the light. That's the whole point, right? His light was a life to us. It is the lie of the enemy that we should hide those things away. Because the moment we pull our sin into darkness is the moment that we give that sin power over us. It's true. If you want to have power over your sin... The place to live is right in the middle of the light. This is part of the reason why I try to be transparent as a pastor. Because if there is a public face, and then there's what's actually going on, there is an incredible opportunity for the enemy to move in my life. And so I say things about myself that you're like, I don't think I wanted my pastor to have to struggle with that struggle. But I'm telling you, there is no place better to live than in the light. And I have watched as pastors have lost their ministries because they dragged things into the darkness because they were worried, what will happen to the ministry if I let people know? Or what will happen to my relationships with other people if I let them know? But it lived so long in the darkness that it ended up destroying everything. And even in the last few months, I have been reminded of this again. And as a result, man, I'll just tell you totally openly and honestly, about a month ago, the Holy Spirit said to me, you do not have enough accountability relationships in your life. And so I went out and I found some more accountability relationships in my life. And I said, here's what I need you to hold me accountable with. And I need you to hold me. Because if these things are hidden away in my life, then I give it power over me. And that is the same with every sin and every bit of shame in our lives. The moment we drag it into the darkness, we give it power over us. 
And Jesus came in order to break the power of sin. Well, the only way that works is if we take that sin and bring it right into the light and say, here's where I am. And that's what this verse is saying. But then it says that because we love darkness so much, we pull away from it. And he says, but then on the flip side of that, those who do what is right come to the light so others can see that they are doing what God wants. Bring it back into the light because when it's in the light, Jesus can do something with you along, uh, along with you about it. And the crazy thing is, God sees it already anyways. Psalm 139 says that. Even the darkness is as light to you. There is nowhere I can go to hide from his presence. Me sitting beside the road in darkness does not hide anything from God. And so when we hide in darkness, it's not that we think we're hiding it from him. We're hiding it from ourselves. This year or this week was a tough week for me because we did something that I've resisted doing for so long. And I didn't want to do it, but the time came when I had to do it. I don't know how many of you know what this thing is. If you know what that is, you know all about it. That is a State Farm Drive Safe and Save Beacon. Yeah. Three years ago, I decided to get Drive Safe and Save in order to save on my car insurance. I wanted the Patrick price. I kept it for two days. And then I threw it away and called and canceled. I said, I'm not messing with that. You don't need to be watching to see how I drive. But this last year, things have gotten more expensive. And as we were starting to budget for 2024, I decided... One of the areas that we had seen increase was in our car insurance. So I called State Farm and said, How are, what are some ways that we can save on our car insurance? And they said, you could do drive safe and safe. And so I bowed my knee. And we got drive safe and safe. If you don't know, it keeps track of really five different things. It tracks how you drive and grades you in braking, accelerating, speed, cornering, and phone distraction. As you can tell, I'm having a little issue with cornering right now. That cornering is at Crystal Cave. H Highway at Crystal Cave, the speed limit is 55. If you go 45 through there, apparently the State Farm Drive Safe and Save thinks that's unsafe. So I have two events at Crystal Cave when I was going 45 miles an hour. Anyways. <laughs> and then I had a speed issue right here north of H where there's a hill that goes down. I got just over the limit that you're not supposed to go over. I did find out exactly what that is by trial and error. So I know exactly how fast I can go. And I can't go any faster than that, but I know what I can go up to, and it's not the speed limit. You can actually, well, it's not important. It's not important. That's not the point. But 
what you're supposed to do is be able to see on each and every drive how you did. And so here's what it's supposed to look like. On those five things, you could see this means that I did great, right? So it's got five red bars on acceleration, braking, cornering, speeding, and phone distraction. This is what it looks like when I drive. Here's what it looks like when Liz drives. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just joking. I'm just joking. I'm just joking. I'm sorry. All right. So that's what it looks like good. Here was one of those really bad ones, right? The cornering issue. I had, I had two cornering. Those are my only two things. But it dinged me on that. And it really upset me. And I was done. I was ready to call them back up and say, get these things out of my car. I don't want to see them ever again. But then here's the thing. I do corner too fast. I do speed. I do accelerate way too quickly. And I do sometimes get distracted on my phone when I'm driving. I'm just saying. And this is, I mean, it's social engineering, right? They are engineering me. My stupid insurance company is watching how I drive and trying to get me to change. But it's good. Because it only takes one time being distracted on my phone. And something major happens. And my life and my family's life or somebody else's life could be fundamentally changed. So it's okay. Because this is a change that I need, but I buck at it. Who are you to look at my driving and tell me how to drive? Here's the crazy part. Many of you know I drive a Tesla. The Tesla, if you don't know this, keeps track of all those same things. Not only that, but it has a sonar on the front and on the back and on all the sides. And if I follow too close, it knows. And if I stop too quickly, it knows. It knows all of that. But I don't care. Because Tesla never tells me how I'm doing. The problem isn't whether or not somebody's tracking. The problem is when they tell me I'm not doing a good job. And that is exactly what this is about. Here's the crazy part about this, if you look at this. The issue is not whether or not God sees it. The issue is whether he makes us aware that we are not living up to the standard. Here's three things I pick up from this passage. Number one, the light is life for us. There is no better place to be than right in the middle of the light. It is life to us. And the thing is, some people don't believe that. I have heard people say to me, If I confess this, if I bring this into the light, it will impact my relationships. And I said to them, it is already impacting your relationships. You're just pretending it's not. You're just pretending. But when you're confronted with that, that's the hard part. But when you live in the middle of the light... That's where life is. Two, loving darkness will always become hatred of the light. Did you notice that trend? 
It said, first, they loved darkness more than they loved the light. But then after they loved the darkness more than they loved the light for a while, then it was not just they loved it more, then it was that they hated the light. Loving darkness, hiding it away, will always progress and get worse. It doesn't get easier a week from now or easier a month from now. It doesn't get easier a year from now. It will always get more difficult because loving the darkness will always progress to hating the light. That's the second thing. Third thing is this, and this I just was sitting with for a while this week. It is God's love that causes many to hate him. Did you catch the progression on that? God so loved that he gave his son, who is the light of the world, and so he sends that light into the world, but it was that same light that caused some to hate him. It is the very gift of salvation that makes some hate him. Isn't that remarkable? Think about it. What, what this seems to say is if God would have just stayed in heaven with all his holiness intact, with all his perfection, if he would have just been in heaven there and left us alone to our own devices, people would be totally fine with him. But it is the moment that he says... I recognize that you are lost in your sin and sends that light to us. A son who is holy and perfect and with him that light displays all of our sin. So the very act of love from God to us is the thing that causes us to hate him. If he would let us go about our lives without having to hear about sin and death and judgment, everybody would be okay with God. They wouldn't have a problem. Just let us go about our lives until we die and are damned to hell. But he loves us so much that he sends his son. And in that moment when his perfection displays our sin and we see that, now all of a sudden we hate it and we push back away from it and we hide in the darkness. It is the very love of God that causes some to hate him. And yet he sent his son anyways because his love was so great. And then Colossians talks about how as a result there are two kingdoms. There is the kingdom of darkness and there is the kingdom of his beloved son. There is the kingdom of darkness and there is the kingdom of his beloved son. The kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And God loves us so much that his grand design and grand desire is for those who are walking in darkness, those who are stirred in the chaos of darkness, and those who are sitting in darkness, whether it's because they're just waiting or because they've given up or because they are hiding away. That his great design is to take us out of the kingdom of darkness and move us into the kingdom of his beloved son. God's holiness is such that it causes so many to hate him, but it is his perfect love in that holiness that caused him to display it in Jesus Christ the perfect image of God to us.
And when he came, he did not come to condemn. He came to save us out of our condemnation. So this is what Christmas is about. That God loves us so much that he sent his son knowing that many would hate him as a result. Giving us just what we needed, even though we didn't know we needed it. As the perfect gift. It shows his deep love for us. Shows his deep love for you. That's what Christmas is about. That he loves so much that the gift he gave was the gift we didn't even know we needed. We thought we definitely didn't even want until we received it. And the moment we receive it, that's when we see it for the beauty of what it is. The son given for us and how much that displays his love for us.